The scripture reading this morning comes out of Exodus. We're going to read Exodus 1 through chapter 2, verse 10. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a black pew Bible in front of you, so we encourage you to read along with us. It'll be on page 53. Exodus 1, 1 through 2, 10. Page 53 in the Black Pew Bible. Read along with me, please. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his own household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. When Joseph died all his, and all his brothers and all that generation, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too mighty and too many for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwife said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and gave birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt, with, dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. She saw that he was a fine child. She hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took him for she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and endowed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to, said to, to her, Go. So the children went and called the child's mother. 
And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. I hope you kept your Bibles turned there to Exodus chapter 1. We are starting a new book. We'll be walking through the book of Exodus starting this morning. So if you're a part of our church family, I'd encourage you to bring a notebook. And if you go into my office on, on the shelf facing the desk, there's a, a, a row of notebooks. When I was, um, before I p- began pastoring, I would take a spiral notebook and I would take notes and and the Lord really used that, and, and I glean from that even now. I sit under an expositor, a great preacher. I was able to take notes, and later I was able to organize those notes, and I, I, I use those regularly. So I'd encourage you, if you're part of our church family, bring a, bring a uh, notebook, take some notes. If you, and if there's ever a time when I'm preaching and you don't get a quote or you didn't hear something rightly and you want to hear, you can always listen on... Um, our podcast, but you could also text me, email me. I'll send you the manuscript if you'd like. Our small group leaders also have that. They can help you with that as well. We're in Exodus, uh, God's great rescue. And today we're looking at chapters 1 and 2. God keeps his promises, preserves his people, and prepares uh, a deliverer. So I'm excited about this book, excited about what the Lord's going to do in our church through it. You know, the first five books of the Old Testament were written on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit by Moses. Genesis is a book of beginnings. Exodus is a story of Israel's rescue. Leviticus is about worship. Numbers is about boot camp, Israel being prepared to go in and take the promised land. It also records the wanderings of that rebellious generation. Deuteronomy is when Moses gives the law the second time to the new generation about to enter the promised land. So this is the Pentateuch, the the five books of Moses. And the purpose of the five books of Moses as a whole are to remind Israel who God is and how they became God's chosen people. So we're in the second book. We're Genesis, Exodus. And, And Genesis, we said, is the book of beginnings. Well, beginnings of what? Well, firstly, it's the beginning of creation. The God of the universe used his words to create everything out of nothing. He created for six days. On the seventh day, he rested. He took man whom he created. He created him out of the dust of the ground, and he put him in the garden and told him not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Genesis, it's the book of beginnings, the beginning of creation. It's also the beginning of sin. Because that man, Adam, and Eve, his wife, they were in the garden, and they both rebelled. Eve listened to the serpent. She took the fruit, and she ate it, and then she gave it to her husband. He also rebelled. He also ate it. And the result of that was they were separated from the Lord. They were cast out of the garden. So we see Genesis is the beginning of sin. And also, thirdly, Genesis is the beginning of, we see the beginning of a great nation. In Genesis chapter 12, God chose a man, Abram, later named Abraham, and God made a covenant with him, or when we say covenant, he gave him a promise. And we read about that in Genesis 12, 1 through 4. 
Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him, and Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Now this is a promise given to Abraham, you're going to become a great nation. From you, a great nation is going to come forth. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to bless those who bless you. I'm going to curse those who curse you. Through you, I'm going to bless all the peoples of the earth. Now, the problem with that situation is that Abraham is older. His wife is older, and he has no children. So how can he have a lot of kids when he didn't first have one? That's a problem. But God solved that problem when Abraham was 90, gave him a son, Isaac. Isaac married Rebekah. They had Esau and Jacob. Jacob was a child of promise. Jacob married Rachel and Leah and had 12 sons. Now Jacob's name was changed also to Israel. And so his 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. And if you think about having 12 boys in one house, some of you have two or three. We've got a family back here who's got two or three boys and there's a lot of rigmarole going on, a lot of fussing and and aggravating each other. You just imagine having 12 in the same house. There was a problem. And the favorite son, Joseph, he just, he wasn't, because he was the youngest, he wasn't just picked on, but he was hated. So much so that he was sold to slave traders going to Egypt. Jacob, his father, was told that he'd been attacked by animals and killed. Again, we talk about God's providence. We talk about that often. It's providential. Through that wicked act of his brothers selling him into slavery, God's going to save all their lives and set us up for this great rescue mission we'll, we'll study in the book of Exodus. Well, Joseph, after being falsely imprisoned, he interpreted the dreams of two of his cellmates in jail. And when Pharaoh had some troublesome dreams, he needed someone to interpret them. And lo and behold, one of his cellmates had gotten out. He was a cupbearer of the king. He told him about Joseph. And Joseph informed Pharaoh that his dream foretold of seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine that would occur in the land. As a result, Joseph was put in charge of Egypt. In years to come, the whole known world would come to Egypt to buy grain. And that included Joseph's brothers. What they meant for evil, God meant for good, yeah. Joseph not only forgave his brothers, but he moved the entire family, 70 in all, back to Egypt where they were well taken care of. And that's where we pick up with Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. Now, I'm a big outline guy. I love outlines. And so I'm going to put several outlines up here that I'd like for you to jot down. I think it will help you. For me, if I could hold up my Bible, you'll see it on the top of the book of Exodus, these outlines. I think it helps us as we think through the book. But here's several. Um, this outline is based on the setting of the events, where it takes place. Where we see chapter 1 through 12 is, takes place in Egypt. Then 12 through 18, the, the, the trip to Sinai. And then um, chapters 19 through 40, that information, all it deals with what took place at Sinai. There's another outline deal with the Exodus, that, that rescue from Egypt. 
Then they get to Sinai and the law is given, right? The Mosaic covenant, uh, it's, it's often called. And then the instructions on the tabernacle. So that's a different outline for you. And we also have a, a simpler one. Redemption, chapters 1 through 18, and then Revelation 19 through 40. You've got the book of Genesis, which is the book of beginnings. In the book of Genesis, you see oftentimes a, a lot of human effort, but also a lot of failure. But we see in the book of Exodus, you see divine power and triumph. So I gave you the purpose of the Pentateuch, the five books of the first five books of the Old Covenant called the Torah, the Pentateuch. I gave you the purpose of all of those books, but I think the purpose of the book of Exodus is this, to reveal to us the one true God. And that, you could say that about every book in the Bible, couldn't you? The, the, every book in the Bible is about God. It's not about us. It's not about Chase. It's not about Savannah. It's not about Rodney. No, the Bible is about God. And every book of the Bible teaches us who he is and what he's like. But the book of Exodus reveals to us the one true God, the one who redeems his people so he might dwell with them. Again, we said that Genesis meant beginnings. Well, the book of Exodus means departure or going out. And so what God does, he takes his people out of Egypt so that he could bring them into fellowship, into intimacy with him. So there's three things Morgan read for us. Uh, the first part, the first chapter and the first part of chapter two, three things I want to point out to us in our time this morning. And one of the great things about our setup here at Beaver um, is sometimes we don't cover everything in the text, especially with narrative texts. As you study a good hermeneutical principle, you know, a narrative text, which we're studying now in the book of Exodus, it's, it, we have to take bigger chunks. And sometimes there's things there that we don't, we, we can't spend time on or don't have time to spend time on. But that's the great thing about being a part of a small group. If you're a part of our church and you're not part of a small group, I'll encourage you. We have Sunday morning small groups that, that meet before, before worship at 930, and we have Sunday night small groups that meet in homes. But I want to encourage you to be involved in a small group because what happens, the things that we don't discuss or we don't, we don't tackle here on, on Sunday morning, you can discuss those uh, in your small group. And so I want to encourage you to, to, to be a part of that. So today I'm going, to lead a, I'm going to leave a lot of meat on the bones for you small group leaders. But three things I want to point out in these first two chapters. Number one is the sovereign God keeps his promises. The first seven verses of chapter one. Exodus is the, the continuation of Genesis. We have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And Exodus starts in the, in the original Hebrew. It begins with the word and. It's a continuation of, of Genesis. So we're just continuing the story. In verses one through six here of of Exodus chapter 1, it sums up the history of Israel as a clan, as a nation, as described more thoroughly in Genesis 12 through 50. And these six verses, they remind us that, that all that's going to take place in this book is directly related to what has gone before as described in Genesis. In fact, there's a genealogy here. This genealogy in these first few verses, it's, it's an abbreviated one that's found in Genesis chapter 46. And it's interesting, you get to verse... Seven, we're told nothing of the life of Israel in Egypt for those 400 years. We don't know, we don't know anything about what happened during those 400 years with, with verse 7 and, and the rest of chapter 1 being the exception. It says the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They increased so much that they're going to reach 
about one million people. Exodus chapter 12, verse 37 tells us that there were 600,000 men, not including women and children. And this description of Israel's fruitfulness really brings to mind several texts, um, one being Genesis 1:28, where God tells man, Adam, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So man, Adam and Eve, were created in the image of God. And what he wanted man to do is increase, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Why? Because as man fills the earth, what's he doing? He's filling the earth with God's image bearers. Psalm 72, 19, this, the purpose of God in Genesis 1 is expressed in many, many scriptures. We see one here. Blessed be the, his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. So as we think about the population explosion that took place during those 400 years that the Israelites were in Egypt, we think about that command to be fruitful and multiply so God's glory can be filled in the earth as God's image bearers fill the earth. The second text that this population explosion calls us to think about is, is that text in Genesis 12 where God tells Abraham that he's going to have a, uh, become a great nation. We call that the Abrahamic covenant. And it's, it may be where you're thinking about the second the second time that promise is made to Abraham, because Abraham was hearing God. Yeah, I'm going to become a great family. I'm going to have a lot of kids, but he didn't have any kids. And in fact, one time he was worried, and he's thinking about his servant. He had a servant that undoubtedly he was close to, and he's thinking about leaving everything to his servant because he doesn't have a, a child. And his son's name was Eliezer. And it's in Genesis 15, verse 4 through 6. He says, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, this man, speaking about his servant, Eliezer, shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and, the number, and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Verse 7 fills a 400-year gap covering the period of time from the death of Joseph to the time of the Exodus. And if it wasn't for this verse, we wouldn't know much about what happened during that time. But you have this small group of Israelites. They, they go to Egypt to the care of Joseph and Pharaoh, and years have passed. Joseph and his brothers died, but Israel, the Israelites, they continue to grow in number. There's no infertility clinics in, in Goshen where the Israelites lived. They're, they have become a great nation, one million strong, because God kept his promise to Abraham. You think about those 400 years the Israelites were in Egypt. I'm, I'm sure many times they were tempted to think maybe God had forgotten his promises to them. But God is faithful, isn't he? He said they would become a great nation, and we see that begin to come to fruition there in Goshen. He's a promise keeper. The second thing we see from the text is that God preserves his people. Verses 8 through 22. They're having this, Hunter, they're having this population explosion there in, in Egypt, the Israelites are, 
But not everybody's happy about that. They're not happy about this exponential growth of God's people. A new king arose, a new Pharaoh who didn't know Joseph. And because of the population growth, what happens is he becomes suspicious of the, of the Hebrews. Think about Egypt. They're the world superpower at this time in, in, in world history. And primarily because of Joseph and because of the Israelites. Do you remember when Joseph came, he, he was given the authority to lead that nation and through his leadership, Egypt began, became the, the world superpower. They became very wealthy. And so it's because of the Israelites that Egypt was prospering. And how were they thanked? Verse 11, therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. And they had them build cities for them. That's how they were thanked. And, and think about it. Was God surprised by that? Did that take God by surprise? We, we know that it didn't because God is sovereign, orchestrating all of these events to fulfill his purposes. Genesis chapter 15. Again, the book of Exodus is just a continuation of, of, of the book of Genesis. But the Lord's not surprised by their enslavement, by their oppression. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with a great possessions. And as for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So God wasn't surprised by their oppression. This Pharaoh, he decided that they're too strong. They're too numerous. We've got to do something about the Israelites. Getting a little fearful of them. And so he oppresses them, he enslaves them, and he forces them to build cities for him. But the more they are afflicted, look at verse 12. The more they're afflicted, the more they multiply, and the more they spread abroad. And this is the principle of God, isn't it? We see this throughout the scriptures. Growth comes from affliction. Think about in your own life. When have you grown the most spiritually? Usually in difficult times, right? When things are going well, we seem to kind of coast and depend on ourselves. And when things are hard, what do we do? We draw near to the Lord. We draw near to the Lord. When we get anxious, what do we do? Draw near to the Lord, right? Man, those, 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 those circumstances that bring about anxiety, are they good? In some ways, they are. Think about how God uses affliction to grow his kingdom. In the book of Acts, do you remember Stephen being stoned and this great persecution broke out against the church? And what, what was the result? The church grew and expanded and more people were reached. I, I, we saw that in, in communist China during the cultural revolution of the 1960s and 70s, the, all the foreigners, the missionaries were expelled from the country and, and the world was really anxious, wondering what was happening to the church in China as persecution broke out. And as the, the communist government, they attempted to inhibit the growth of the church, to eradicate the church. But decades later, as foreigners returned little by little to China, what do they find? 
What did they find? They didn't find a church that was near extinction. No, they found a church that had grown and had flourished. Here in Egypt, the forced labor and oppression didn't stifle the growth of the Israelites, but it led to an increase in population. So Pharaoh wanted to do something about the Israelites. He forced them to build his cities, but that didn't inhibit the growth. And so he had to come up with something else, another plan. And so verses 15 through 22, he had the midwives brought in and they were ordered to to kill all the baby boys. The baby girls, you let them live, but the baby boys, let's eradicate them. Well, how are they supposed to do that? We're not really sure how that was to take place. We're not told. Could be that they were going to do the same thing that he commanded everyone to do in verse 22, and that's to throw them in the Nile. We're not sure. But we just see this Pharaoh, the wicked, wickedness of Pharaoh, but the midwives, what do they do? They feared the Lord rather than man. And they disobeyed the Pharaoh. And when Pharaoh found out about it, he had the midwives brought in and he demanded an explanation. In verse 19, the midwives said, well, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwives come to them. And, and that had to be true to some degree, right? I mean, they went from 70 to a million in 400 years. Yeah, I mean, we can't even say push, right? And the babies are born. I mean, they're just amazing. They're not like us. They're not like the Egyptian women. The Hebrew women are pretty tough. They don't have a problem having, bearing children. That was true. The Lord had given them grace, hadn't he? Notice in verse 20. And so... God dealt well with the midwives. As a result of their protecting the baby boys, they were blessed. They multiplied. The nation of Israel was blessed. It says they grew. How, how Did they grow just a little bit in verse 20? No, they grew very strong. And it's interesting. We're given the names of these midwives. Shifra and Pua in verse 15. That's quite interesting because... In the big scheme of things, and, and we think about world history, they're not all that important, you wouldn't think, but yet they're named. So from that point on, people know their names because of their obedience to the Lord. Do you know the Pharaohs? Do you know their names? They're not given. Isn't that interesting? They're not given. And you might think about the Israelites, what's going on in their minds. They're enslaved, they're mistreated, now they had their baby's boys. And you think, well, these midwives, they saved the baby boys. Well, they saved a lot of them, but I'm, I'm pretty sure they didn't save all of them. You have some who are losing their babies and they're being oppressed. You can imagine how they would be tempted to question the Lord, wondering where he is, what about his promises that he had made to them. But... But all the while, as this is happening, God is working behind the scenes all the time. Think about our own lives. We go through hard times, don't we? We struggle, and maybe it's financial struggles. Maybe it's marriage issues. Maybe it's 
struggles with our children. Maybe it's just our own sin battle, the fight against the flesh. We all struggle. And are you ever tempted to think that God maybe has forgotten about you or maybe he's, he isn't going to do what he promised he would do? God keeps his promises and he preserves his people. Even though you have this edict, this command for, not only for the midwives, but look at verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast to the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So everything the Pharaoh's doing, he's, he's oppressing them, he enslaves them. That didn't help. We, he, he commands the midwives to kill the boys. That didn't help. As they're oppressing, 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 God is blessing and blessing. And so the population continues to, to grow and increase. God is keeping his promises to the nation. And last thing that we see in our text today, God prepares a deliverer, chapter 2. This command to kill the baby boys provides a backdrop for what's about to happen in chapter 2. And what happens, the attention is turned from the nation to one person, a baby boy. And Moses read for, I mean, um, Morgan, I'm sorry, not Moses. That might be good. Moses. Morgan read for us, verse 1 through 10. Moses was born during this time to parents, Amram and Jochebed. We're not given the names here, but in the book of Numbers, we're told his parents' names. And he was a Levite, born of the tribe of Levi. And Moses was born in, in, in our opinion, probably the worst of times, right? Very turbulent times. And, but it says his mother saw that he was a fine child. And that's the same word in Genesis chapter 1. When God created everything, he would create something. He said, and God saw that it was good. Same word here. She said that her son was it's a fine boy. He's a good boy. Jochebed hid Moses from Pharaoh for three months. But when she knew she couldn't hide him any longer, she put him in a basket and she put him in the Nile. And that's kind of ironic because the Nile is, you're supposed to throw the babies into the Nile, the baby boys, to eradicate the boys. But here you see the Nile actually preserves his life. And I always think it's kind of interesting when she put him in the, the Nile River among all the reeds and then Miriam, Moses' older sister, is there watching. I'm sure she had her watch Come report back and tell me what happens. And, and did she think that Pharaoh's daughter would find Moses? We're, we're not real sure. Did she time it where she puts him there just as she knows Pharaoh's coming? We're, we're not told. But when Pharaoh's daughter came down to bathe, she found Moses and verse 6 took pity on the baby. Now, apples don't fall too far from the tree. But this daughter didn't take after her daddy, did she? She had pity on this little Hebrew baby. Miriam, Moses' older sister, watched from a distance, and she asked if a nursemaid was needed. And when she was told that one was needed, she went and got her mother. And so Jochebed got, to, got paid for taking care of her own son, whom Pharaoh was trying to annihilate. Pharaoh's daughter named him Moses, which means to draw out. She drew him out of the water. God would use Moses to draw the 
people of God out of Egypt, wouldn't he? And Moses was brought up in Pharaoh's household. Now you tell me, what do you think Moses ate? He grew up in, Mo, in Pharaoh's household. He sits at the king's table. What do you think he ate? Probably pretty good food, huh? What about his education? Pretty good education, too, I'm, I'm sure. Yeah, the best. And so what do we see? We see God preparing Moses. Look, let's look at chapter 2, verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on the burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Verse 12, he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? And he answered, Who made you prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by the well. We see Moses, he's about 40 years old at this point, kind of take matters in his own hand, and he identifies with his people, the Hebrews, and he kills this man and hides his body, but he's found out, isn't he? And Moses is afraid, and he flees. It's interesting. You see him identifying with his people. He took up for his for the Hebrews. He killed the Egyptian. Then we see him rejected by the Hebrews. Who are you? Are you prince and judge over us? And then he flees. Think about 1,500 years later, there's going to be a baby born who soon after he was born was threatened by a king, King Herod. He left heaven and he identified with his people. He too, King Jesus, right, was rejected by his people. It's kind of interesting. Verse 15, he goes and sits by a well. And verse 16, now the priest of Midian had seven daughters and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flocks. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? And they said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. If someone does something so kind, why did you not ask him for dinner? What are you thinking, girls? And the rest is history, isn't it? Moses stays there with Jethro, he's also called. He marries Zipporah. And he had a son. How do we apply this text as we close chapter 1 and 2? We'll finish the rest of chapter 2 next week and pick up there. God keeps his promises. He's a promise keeper. Just as he kept his promise to Abraham, he would make him to a great nation. He... He will keep his promises to you and to me. I mean, think about Pharaoh, the most powerful leader in the world, can't stop the growth of God's people as they become as numerous as the stars in the sky. In fact, Joshua 
Moses' understudy is going to say in Joshua 23, 14, and now I am about to go the way of all the earth, and you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you, not one of them has failed. And I, just by way of application, we need to trust the Lord to do all that he said he's going to do. And, and for some of you, you may be here, and you've never trusted the Lord. You're like Adam and Eve. You rebelled against the Lord and you're separated from the Lord. You're dead in your trespasses and sins and you're separated from God. And right now you're separated from the Lord, but what happens when you breathe your last, you die physically, you're going to be separated from the Lord for all eternity in, in a place called hell. And that's the right place for sinners because God is just and he must punish the unrighteous. That's what we all deserve, and that's the condition we're all in. But the good news is that God sent the deliverer 1,500 years after Moses to walk this earth and to die in our place, to take sinners' punishment. Jesus was crucified and he was buried and on the third day he rose from the dead. So the Bible says so we could be justified. We could be made right with God. The God that we've rebelled against, like Adam and Eve rebelled in the garden, they were cast out of the garden, that's the condition we're all in. The Bible says that Jesus died so that we could be brought back into right relationship with this holy creator God. And we talk about God being a promise keeper. Just think about his promises as... John led our confession time and he read 1 John 1 9, which says, If we confess our sins, if we come humbly before the Lord, Lord, I've sinned, I've rebelled against you. I deserve your wrath and your punishment. If we confess our sin to the Lord, 1 John 1 9 says that he's faithful and just. He will forgive us of our sin. Not just the little bitty ones, not just the little small ones that we think are small. Even the, the most heinous of sins says, God will forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a promise from the Lord, and God's a promise keeper. Have you trusted Christ today? Have you confessed your sin and trusted the work that Christ did on the cross for you? Have you trusted him today? God's a promise keeper, and he wants to he wants to forgive you of your sin. He wants to give you a new life, new birth. He wants to give you right standing with him. But you have to confess. You have to turn from your sin. See, God's a promise keeper. If you confess your sin, he'll forgive you. And he'll bring you into his family. And he'll reconcile you. And he'll give you hope. Hope that one day when you do breathe your last, you'll, you'll be with the Lord forever because of what Christ has done for you. But God's a promise keeper. He promises his blessings and, and, and hope and, and mercy and forgiveness. But you know what? God promises. He also promises judgment. God keeps his word. He keeps his promise. All those who rebel against the Lord, you know what God will do? God will judge. God's loving and he's merciful, but he's also just. He'll judge the sinner. 
Life's real fragile. Sometimes we think we're going to live forever. We're not. One day we're going to breathe our last. And if you haven't been reconciled to a holy God, you're going to be cast into outer darkness where you'll be separated from the Lord for all eternity. Won't you trust Christ today? Turn from your sin. Trust Jesus to forgive you, restore you. God's a promise keeper. And God preserves his people. You know, if you're a child of God, if you've confessed your sin, if you trusted Christ, you're depending on Christ and Christ alone for your salvation, you know what? He's going to preserve you. All those promises he gives you in his word, all those things are going to come true. I love Philippians 1.6. The work that he began in us, you know what he's going to do? He's going to finish it. Isn't that great? Isn't that a great promise? I mean, we think about our own sin, and we all struggle with sin. And if you're visiting with us, we're glad you're here. It may be the first time you're here. I'm going to tell you, we come to church, and I know this is kind of an old-school thought, and it's nonsensical and it's not biblical, but we don't come to church because we, we got it all together. We're not here because, man, you know, them good folks go to church. No, we, go, we come to church because we're not good folks. We're jacked up, and we're selfish and sinful, and we're needy. See, I come to church because I need help. That's why we come to church. We need it. And you know what? The Lord is, what's he doing? He's sanctifying us, and, and he's making us more and more like himself. And the hope that I have is one day I'm going to stand before the Lord because of what Christ done for me. I'm going to be made like Jesus. I'm not going to have this, I'm not going to have selfish tendencies. I'm not going to be prideful. I'm not going to be malicious. I'm going to be loving. And I'm going to be able to praise the Lord for all eternity without hindrance and without distraction because of what Christ done for me. He preserves his people. If you're a believer, he's going to preserve you. If you don't have that hope that you'll be preserved, that you'll be like Jesus one day, that you'll be with the Lord, man, I'd love to talk to you about that. I'll be the last one to leave. I'll lock up. I'd love to stay and talk to you about that. You could call me. My phone is, uh, is on 24-7. Love to talk to you about that. We're going to wrap things up. We're glad you're here. Providentially, we, we trust God's providence that he brought you here for a reason today. Maybe it's just you've been loved on and encouraged. Maybe you've heard something uh, from the message. Maybe it's the true songs that we sang. God used that to bless you. But we pray that the Lord every week would bring those that need to be here here to us. If we can do anything for you, let us know. you have any needs, you have questions, we'd love to talk to you. We'll pick up right here next week and, and continue to study in the book of Exodus. So we'll give you something to read through and be prepared for. Bring your notebook, take some notes. It'll be helpful for you. Anything else before we dismiss, brother? Anything? Buddy? All right, glad you're here. Let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, we acknowledge you're good to us. We're thankful for your word. And Lord, we read these Old Testament stories about how you dealt with Israel and how you chose them and, and called them to yourself and, and made them your people. And we know that these scriptures are for our benefit and it's to give us hope and encourage us. And Lord, so we can learn from Israel's example. And Lord, we're thankful. We're thankful for this study and I pray that you would use it to bless our church. 
Father, I pray if there's anybody here that's yet to trust Christ, that you would, Lord, use the sweet gospel message. Father, change their lives today. May you grant them faith. May you grant them repentance today. Father, for us as a church, Lord, may we grow in our faith. Father, we, we, we do trust you. Those of us that are believers, we do trust you. But Lord, we just ask you would help our unbelief. Lord, help us to trust you that you're the promise keeper and you are going to preserve us. Father, when difficulty, some of us are just struggling in marriage, struggling in life, struggling with jobs, struggling in relationships. Lord, we just ask that you would bring your sweet truths to our remembrance that we'd be encouraged and not lose heart. Thank you for the, the new folks you brought to us today. May you bless them and they leave rejoicing, singing the true songs we sang, remembering the, the truth we've heard from your word. Bless us as we go in Jesus' name. Amen.